Welcome to our Simply Sustainability podcast presented by Clarisys. In this series, we look at what can sometimes be the intimidating topic of sustainability and break it down into digestible, bite-sized chunks to help you on your way to a more sustainable future. Hello, my name is Olivia Birch, a consultant here at Clarisys. In today's podcast, I am delighted to be learning from Dr. Rachel Smedley, a senior lecturer in geography and planning from the University of Liverpool, on the important role that academic data can play in helping inform organisational decision making. Rachel, do you want to just start us off by telling us who you are and what your research interests and specialities are? Okay, great. Hi, thanks for inviting me to do this. So I study past environmental change over the last few hundred thousand years. So from recently right the way back to hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I'm an expert in a technique called luminescent dating, where I can basically dig up grains of sand, silt or rocks from under the ground and tell you how long they've been buried for. And I use this approach to reconstruct how the environment has changed over time, mostly focusing on large scale long term climate change. So at present, I'm involved in some research that's determined what the environment was like when humans evolved from Homo erectus into Homo sapiens, so modern humans as we are today, in northern Africa. So this is somewhere between some few hundred thousand years ago. But I also work over much shorter timeframes as well. So thinking about the last few centuries, one of my current PhD students, Natasha Pinozo, is using my sort of skills and techniques alongside numerical modelling to understand how what the impacts of storms, sea level rise and humans are on, on salt masters in the UK. And more recently, the thing that I've been trying to work on and develop recently is a new technique where we can drill into the surface of a rock and see how sunlight is penetrated into that rock. And we can use this data to determine erosion rates of rock surfaces, which completely blows my mind every time I do it. But it has incredible potential for monitoring things like building decay in response to climate change and pollution, for example. Wow, this is really fascinating, Rachel. It's amazing to hear about the use case of luminescence dating and the data that can be produced from completing this technique. It would be really interesting to know how your research contributes towards the sustainability space and how it informs decision making. So as you can probably imagine, my research works on quite a high sort of more global level when thinking about sustainability and decision making, because I provide the wider context for climate change we are experiencing today and what we will continue to face in the coming century and beyond. So there are a wide range of scientists from across many disciplines that are all working together to provide this knowledge and reduce the uncertainties that still exist in climate science. So all these projections for the future, all the things that we use to manage and mitigate for future climate change. We're trying to reduce all the uncertainties and then make it a bit more certain. And I'm very interested in how precipitation responds to climate change. And I've been recently working on new approaches to record how precipitation gradients have changed in the past to climate change so we can better understand how they may respond in the future. So we've already observed in recent years that the seasonality of rainfall in the UK has changed. So April showers are less noticeable than they used to be. And this is, is recorded in Met Office records as well. In fact, today we're experiencing a heat wave, probably going to break the record. So we can see how things are really changing. And obviously, like understanding precipitation change is really important for agriculture, drinking water, flooding, and even on a more practical basis for wastewater removal and the decay of our sort of built infrastructure. So I want to provide those data sets that we can help to reduce the uncertainties and future predictions of the changing precipitation patterns. 
This is incredibly interesting, Rachel. Now, you speak about scientists providing this knowledge, but how do you present this information to the everyday person? So do you think there's a way in which we present this data to make it more understandable? So I'm sure there are, you know, lots of associated challenges in sharing this context outside of the academic world. People can kind of understand that there's, you know, a heat wave today going on, but maybe don't really understand why. Yeah, I guess the greatest challenge really is effective sharing of knowledge. So being able to pitch things at the right sort of level. We often share things in terms of science with outreach events mainly targeting like school children but I think there's a real gap in terms of how we communicate beyond this and with the sort of commercial and society in general. So I know that I can find things out of my skills and techniques that I've got at my disposal but it's difficult in knowing how this translates really into the different contexts outside of academic like the academic world so how can this be useful for people in society. I know many of my colleagues in, in geography and planning department at Liverpool are very good at actually working with civic and commercial sector to share knowledge and practice and provide very productive solutions that emerge from those partnerships. And uh, so it's about creating a sort of shared goal to work towards that everybody is interested in and everybody will benefit from. And for me, especially the challenges of communication, really. So, you know, it, mostly because what I do is considered to be quite blue skies research that tries to understand the fundamentals about how the earth works. So trying to distill that into how that works in terms of society and, and different areas is more, more challenging, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And it's it's sort of interesting to hear how your research is considered blue skies research. I mean, at Clarisys, we sometimes use blue sky thinking to help our clients develop you know, creative ideas, regardless of practical constraints. So I guess what context is important for companies who at present do not prioritise sustainable transition? Well, I guess my perspective here is more so from a personal perspective, because I don't think anyone can really ignore the big shift recently that we've seen to more sustainable, environmentally friendly practices in recent years. So there are more and more electric car charging points being installed. There are at least two now on my street. And there are lots of more companies that are popping up that are delivering more sustainable products and approaches. So one of my dissertation students this year is even looking into the sort of appetite for sustainable fashion products among consumers. So it's a really big agenda presumably has a, a market that's especially important amongst the younger generation who are not long ago missing their schools to attend climate protests. And so obviously the reason for all this shift in society has been the push behind what's been going on in terms of science. So and the science shows us that the planet is warming at unprecedented rates. And my generation of scientists are now observing the effects of climate warming that the previous generation had predicted. So we're essentially like a natural laboratory now. And so we've known about human-induced climate change for many, many decades, but very little was done about it. And I think there's now a move towards doing something about it. And the temperature warming we've experienced over the last few decades has caused a plethora of impacts across the planet's systems. Our storm tracks at the mid-latitudes have shifted towards the poles and a redistributed precipitation. We have even more climate extremes now, such as wildfires, droughts and heavy rains that can increase soil erosion, the ice is melting and contributing to sea level rise and, and coastal flooding. I could really go on and on and on. I mean, you see most of it in the news these days now. And all of this climate change may sound like lots of numbers and very abstract to think about, but it actually has lots of impacts upon our lives, upon our livelihoods and society. And it's all going to have monetary and, and sort of moral value, really. No, I completely agree. And I think 
you know, when people start understanding monetary and moral value, that's when, you know, they start understanding the real impact of climate change. And I know this might sound like a big question to you, but as, you know, scientists of your generation, what's kind of the consensus or opinion on how we might close the gap between academia and corporate slash society? Well, that really is a big question. I know that recently there's been a real push from UK government agencies to fund science, which basically is funding science innovation between academic and industrial partners. So getting academic and industrial partners to work together with a collective goal to sort of strengthen innovation in terms of science, but doing it within an applied environment. So there's been a real push for that. And there's lots of funds across the UK uh, government agencies and funding that you can access to do that sort of thing. And as academic institutions, we often work quite closely with public sector and and inform practices there. But the corporate world does seem to provide a more difficult challenge, really. But I think communication is the key, you know, taking time to speak to one another about the challenges faced and the potential solutions that can be provided and having effective avenues through which communication can pass. Absolutely. Communication is key, as well as ensuring people trust the research behind the evidence produced. In relation to this, what does your research and knowledge teach us about the world at present to kind of develop and maintain this level of trust? Well, I do all sorts of different things, but I think I'll illustrate, I guess, through two specific examples. So firstly, I've looked at how quickly ice sheets can retreat or melt in response to climate change. So thinking about in paths. So thinking about whether the topography that they retreat over can accelerate retreat rates that are independent of climate. So we've got climate changes happening, but we can also accelerate that by what is inherent to the actual ice sheet itself. So this is really important because marine terminating components of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheet today are experiencing retreat in response to human-induced climate change. And their topography is not flat, you know, and uniform. It's highly variable. And so from looking at pasture ice sheets, we can see where we might expect the ice sheet to speed up or slow down, depending on what's going on underneath the water, essentially. And obviously, when we're thinking about ice sheets today, you know, more ice at the melt at the poles converts into a relative sea level rise, which can cause greater coastal flooding during storms like in the UK or can have detrimental impacts upon the low-lying island nations as well, where seawater can flood their drinking water, as well as many other impacts upon society. So that's thinking about, you know, ice melt and sea level rise. But another example of what I'm looking at in some of my research and currently on a um, big project and working with a big team where we're trying to understand change in aridity in northern Africa, principally in Tunisia, where we've got records from stalagmites from caves that grow during wet periods and dust that accumulates during drier periods. And we're trying to understand whether they're in phase or out of phase with one another, or whether there are more complex atmospheric interactions going on. So this is important because it provides us with a baseline sort of understanding of how aridity and precipitation in Northern Africa can respond to climate change. And we're going to use this data set to sort of generate and improve the climate models so that we're better at projecting future moisture change over Northern Africa, which obviously is is really important part of the world to, to understand. Your current project sounds fascinating, Rachel. I would love to hear more about it, particularly how the data set is informing climate models that will better project future moisture change in North Africa. I guess my question is, how do you use this information that's very specific to North Africa to inform global policy? So, I mean, in terms of Northern Africa, it's, it's part of the big climate systems that then impact upon the other climate systems around the world. So 
what happens in Africa can have implications for things going on much further afield. And so that's why this sort of has impacts upon global policymakers. And the reason that we can have this sort of impact is because members of our team sit on the sort of big international advisory bodies and panels that liaise with policymakers with countries all, all around the world. But we also work, you know, with local stakeholders as well and governments to share our findings more on a local basis so that they can implement things regionally or nationally, should it be useful to them. So they might be able to improve how they manage water resources in the future, for example. Wow, that's really fascinating to hear, Rachel. I mean, you speak about your generation of scientists. What is one thing you wish everyone knew within society? So I guess uh, one of the things that would be useful for everybody to know is that the climate is changing on such fast rates now that the world scientists in that latest international panel for climate change assessment report, so basically where all the, the sort of best knowledge of our climate system is put together. In that report, where they've been modelling and predicting the future, they can't actually rule out the, the possibility of these things referred to as low likelihood, high impact outcomes before the end of 2100, because they're no longer certain that they're beyond the realms of possibility. I mean, it's not to say that they're going to happen exactly, but it's saying that they're not beyond the realms of possibility. So we're talking about those unthinkable events that can occur, as we've seen in the in the record of the past during large-scale long-term climate change, where the Earth crosses thresholds in its system. So things like ice sheet collapse or weakening of our ocean circulation currents that transfers heat and, and nutrients around the world. I'm sure you've all heard of the, um, or even seen the day after the tomorrow film, which is very dramatic. But the principle of the, the Earth systems changing on such a dramatic rate because of the ocean circulation patterns shutting down isn't so crazy because we have seen it happen in the past. And I was quite amazed when I read this in the recent report that these low likelihood, high impact outcomes are now part of the consciousness of of world's decision makers and and they are a possibility. Not to say that they're high likelihood, they're low likelihood, but they're just, we can't rule out the possibility of these things happening. And it gives us an indication that the climate is dramatically changing over over our lifetimes and, and the next generation lifetimes as well. I've never heard of low likelihood, high impact outcomes, and I'm a geographer myself. So I definitely think there needs to be more awareness and it needs to be more widely understood by everyone. Really fascinating, Rachel, for talking through all of that. I thought we could end on a more fun question or a lighter note. I've been trying to look into more sustainable products, household items around my house. It would be good to know what your favourite sustainable brand or habit is, if you have one. I'm sure you do. Yeah, so I have a a company that I use called Splosh, which sells household cleaning products and toiletries that are more sustainable. So they reduce plastic by using refill bottles and containers, and they use all plant-based ingredients. So they're really great, and they smell great too. (laughs) no they they certainly sound great i'll need to check them out after i've spoken to you well brilliant thank you rachel so much for taking the time to speak to me today about your incredible research as a geographer myself it's been amazing to hear the work that has been going on within the discipline do you have anything in terms of if people want to get in touch with more information or if anyone wants to learn more about your work or sustainability in general yeah, you can follow our Twitter, well, my Twitter or the Twitter generally of the University of Liverpool Geography Department, 
or feel free to drop me an email, rachel.smedley at liverpool.ac.uk. You can find me on the internet if necessary. So yeah, that's all fine. Perfect. Thanks, Rachel. And again, thank you so much for speaking with me today and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Simply Sustainability podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, please contact us at sustainability at claricist.com.